The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show today. I'm glad you could take a minute and just be present with me here in this space and time. You know, since the COVID uh, nightmare we've been dealing with, I've been taking a lot of walks, which is actually nice. It's something that I haven't really done before in the past, but for a while there was nothing you could do, you know, to get out. So walking was the best thing. There's this park that I like to walk in here in San Diego. It's called Pioneer Park. And at one point it used to be a cemetery. So there's still some of the gravestones there. And I guess they just left the people there and built a park around it. But I'm always drawn to that. And I like to go and and read the epitaphs on the gravestones. And it just reminded me of a very famous epitaph on a gravestone that I saw at one time that really struck me. And it's supposed to have originated in a European monastery. And it's been copied many different times over. But basically, it says, remember, friend, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I, as I am now, you will surely be, prepare yourself to follow me. And when I read that, it kind of sent a chill up my spine, like someone was reaching out from the past and like tapping me on the shoulder, like, hey, you know, this isn't going to last forever. You will be where I am. And it's just, it, it kind of, it makes you think, you know, dealing with mortality is a difficult thing to process for a lot of people. And there's a lot of fear and uncertainty around what is really a very natural transition in life. And I just finished a great book this past week about exploring the dying process from a religious, metaphysical, and personal point of view. The Illusion of Life and Death by Claire Goldsberry walks us through the mystery of death and dying and provides a guide to looking at this process with a lot less fear and trepidation. So I have Claire joining me today, and I'm so glad we could talk about this. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Diane. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm really, uh, I'm excited to talk about this because I think there's so much fear around this topic and and your book really lays things out in in such a, a great way and takes away a lot of that fear. And in the press release that came with the book, it says, one must learn to die well as one must learn to live well. And you learned this lesson personally after you helped your significant other, Brent, go through 18 months of living with and eventually dying from esophageal cancer. And I really liked his insights in the book. And I found myself really looking forward to those parts in the book where you share his wisdom and experience. And this experience for you was really kind of the catalyst for you writing this book, wasn't it? I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, it was a a catalyst for the book. Um, because I had never really thought much about death. Um, I guess in, in, the, in a typical um, Christian uh, upbringing, there's not a lot that people say about it. And I was never taught to think about it, uh, never taught to consider it. Um, although you always know death is there. We all know that. We, we have a lot of sayings around, you know, the only, the only thing certain is death and taxes. 
And, but I don't think we really ponder death. I don't think we meditate on death. And it was only after I, I came into Buddhism that I was really drawn to, uh, to study uh, death and dying. And I think that's very important because if you, it, it's a big part of life. If we know how to die well, we can live well. Uh, we can live a, a, a more peaceful life. We can live a fearless life. And death truly is uh, one of the biggest fears that all human beings face. In fact, all beings face. Um, you can put your finger down in front of a little ant and the ant will run away because even that ant doesn't want to doesn't want to lose its life. And so we we fear death. We fear losing our bodies because we identify with our bodies. We identify it's it's who we are. It's it's what we are. And I think once we can can get beyond the fear and part of getting beyond that fear is to really understand how to live a fearless life. And I think that's really what Brent showed me was, how do you live a fearless life? How do you embrace all as the path, even things that might seem scary, or even when you get a diagnosis and your death becomes more imminent? Right. And in the book, you talk about the suffering that comes from our clinging and attachment to life. Like you were saying, no living sentient being wants to die, even down to the smallest insect, we'll, we'll hold on to it. We're, we're really attached to these lives. And in the book, you say we live less meaningfully, meaningfully, if we resist change. And can you talk about going like going more with the flow and not clinging so much and being so attached? Well, in Buddhism, there are three uh, poisons. They're called the three poisons because they're the, the three primary things that keep us from living uh, a meaningful life, from living a, a fearless life. The first one is attachment. And I've always thought they put attachment first because that's really our biggest problem. We do become attached to our material possessions, our, our jobs, our you know, everything about our life, uh, our relationships. We become attached to our relationships. We become attached to uh, our bodies, especially. Um, the loss of the body is is a pretty scary thing. But I've also read that all um, that all fear is rooted in the fear of loss, and I think that's very true. I think that when people do get a diagnosis of a terminal disease, I think their first fear is I'm going to lose my body. And we can learn to overcome that. When you talk about suffering, um, the Buddha says that, that uh, attachment is the root of suffering. So if you put those together, that attachment is the root of all suffering um, and, and fear is, uh, is rooted in, in loss, you can see how these things kind of string together in our lives to make life a pretty scary place. And I think it's important that we learn to live in a way that we accept change. We know that everything is impermanent. 
all of life is impermanent. The earth is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. And yet we're, we don't like change. I don't like change. Um, nobody does, but you have to learn uh, uh, to live with change and to embrace change, knowing that often change will result in something really wonderful. If you allow yourself not to be so attached to what is and open yourself to what may be, what spiritual path may come if I just let go and kind of move into that and not be afraid, but be, um, to, but find the opportunities in that. You write about growing up in a Christian household, but you've found a lot of peace in Buddhism. And there's a lot of these great Buddhist philosophies and teachings that you weave throughout the book, just like you were explaining about attachment and how we suffer from clinging on to things rather than embracing change. And do you find the Buddhist idea of death and dying just a lot more practical, I guess, or realistic? It seemed that they were very practical, weren't they? Yes, they are very practical. Um, I, I read recently that uh, that uh, in Hindus believe that Christian religion is very sentimental. And so I think the Eastern philosophies, both Buddhism and Hinduism, tend to be more practical. Um, they have compassion, but they're not sentimental. But I do think that uh, you don't have to be a Buddhist to practice these things. In fact, anyone can practice non-attachment. In fact, everyone should practice non-attachment. So I think that, that yes, growing up Christian, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of the practicalities that Buddhism offers, um, nor was I called upon to really think about things that, um, you know, like death uh, or even life for that matter. Um, how, you know, how do things exist, which obviously led me into, um, into quantum physics, quantum mechanics, the quantum scientists are very parallel with Buddhism, which is why I bring a lot of the quantum sciences into the book as well. That's so interesting how you introduce that for people to think of quantum science and, and death. But I guess where they're saying in quantum science, you know, we create our own reality in a way, like we're creating our own consciousness. We, we could think of that concept as well in the dying process, right? So in a way we could say, well, we go where we think we're going to go. Would that make sense? <laughs> that, that's true. We, we create, you know, the mind is a creator. The mind is always a creator. And in fact, one of my favorite uh, sayings from one of my uh, Buddhist teachers was, um, that everything is created in the mind by the mind. Nothing has any inherent reality from its own side. And I think that goes a lot uh, along with uh, the new thought traditions as well. Um, and that thought becomes reality. Um, and I think we have to learn to adapt to that idea that what we think is creative. So what do we want to create for ourselves? And I think that does have a lot to do with dying. Um, I think I've known people that like my mother who she said, you know, I'm going to die right here, right here in Boone County where I was born. She said, I'm not going to go anywhere else. And, and she did. And I think that, that that's kind of amazing that people can actually think and it becomes a reality. 
uh, everything that we that we see around us is originated in thought, originated in our observation, and became a reality. And there's a lot of stories that I've read too of Native American elders where they would say, "Okay, today's a good day to die," and then just kind of walk off and and die, and like they made that decision. And I even I remember in the movie uh, Harold and Maude, remember that from the seventies, and right. she just decided okay, this is it. And this is when I want to go and made that decision. Uh, I don't know if we all will have that choice. I guess I it's, I guess either. it's possible. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I remember we'll that movie out. with that, that Indian who every day he would get up and he would say, well, today is a good day to die. And, and I suppose we can, we can look at it this way. When we get up in the morning, we can always say today is a good day to die. Because if we really had a choice, no day would be a good day to die. Well, I have too much to do today. I don't have time to die, you know. Um, and I think ultimately, I forget the name of that movie, but it was a good movie. And that was like the line that everyone remembers. But I do think that thinking about death, you know, uh, you know, people think it's morbid. Oh, it's morbid to think about death every day. And yet we don't know. We don't know. Uh, the day of, of our death. I, a little incident in the book that I wrote about was um, uh, in the news and a gentleman had been golfing all day with his buddies and he was actually on his way home to take his wife out to dinner. It was their anniversary. He was stopped at a stoplight here in Phoenix and he just dropped dead of a heart attack. Um, and I, I was so taken by that story because it was, to me, it was such a good example that no, we don't always have that choice. And yet if we open our lives to the, 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 the truth that death is a reality and we don't have a choice often, but I think we can mold our attitude toward it by knowing how to live, by knowing how we create our life and ultimately yeah, how we create our death as well. We have some, str not strange ideas, I guess would be the, that's the wrong word, or maybe some set ideas of what constitutes a success and a good life. And we think, well, you have to have, you know, we have to have a certain amount of success. We work, work to obtain these things. And then at some point we look around like, this is it. This this is all, all there is. I've worked all this time and drudgery and and now this is my life. And we do have the choice to choose what we do in our lives. But do you think that there's something else moving the pieces around or do we always have that choice? Well, that's a good question. I, I do believe in free will. I do believe, I also believe in karma. And sometimes there's some, there's some, um, some confusion over how those two might fit in. But I do think that uh, we are not pieces on a chessboard. I think there, there is free will, that we do have choices. But I think we always have to keep in mind that all of our choices have an outcome. All of the causes have an effect. Uh, effects create more causes. And I think we need to remember that whatever we choose is going to have a consequence. It may not be exactly what we wanted, 
And but in some way, we have chosen that through a path we chose to take, um, through a decision we made. And I do think there is free will. We're not pieces on a chessboard. But I also do not believe in predestination or foreordination, uh, like a lot of the early Christians believed um, in, in ancient times. So I think we have to keep in mind that we do have a choice and our choices do have impacts in our lives. It can create the way we live. It can create the way we die. It can help us live better, uh, depending on, uh, on how we choose to live. And yeah, at some point we get to this, to this, spa this space in our lives that says, is this all there is? I think there was even a song by that. Is this all there is, you know? And, and we start looking around for what is more. And I do believe there's something in us that knows there's more, that there is a different home somewhere, that this is like boarding school, I've always called it, that there is more. And we are guided to find that higher self, that higher being, that, that higher way of living. And I think that's the important thing is to recognize that this isn't all there is and never will be. It's, it's how we approach it and how we live our lives will mean how we realize our deaths. And we're talking a little bit about choice and, and free will. And there's this saying that I've always heard, oh, everything happens for a reason. And people always say that when someone passes away suddenly, like, there was some predetermined reason or someone else beyond us that made that decision for that event to take place. And I've always had a problem with that saying, because I think a lot of times something will happen and we apply reason to it to make sense of it. What do you think about that? And do you think that there's a reason behind everything? Well, I, I think we as human beings are always looking for the why of things. Why did this or that happen? Uh, you know, why me? Um, you know, why that person? Why did that child die? Um, why didn't that child live to be 100? Um, because, of course, longevity is, seems to be the, you know, the goal for everyone. And I, I don't think we can always know why. And I think here's where embracing what is, embracing all as the path uh, becomes very important because it's not always necessary to know why. It just is. We can't know other people's karma. We don't know what their purpose in life was. Um, we barely know our own purpose. We can barely find our own meaning to our own life. And so to ask why, sometimes uh, we kind of get in this Job situation, you know, where his friends were always adding to, you know, well, you must have done something wrong, Job, or you wouldn't have lost everything. You know, Figure it out. What did you do? Why is God angry at you? Um, because I think it, it gave them the sense that, well, if this can happen to Job, it could happen to us. I mean, one day you could be wealthy and have the world by the tail. And the next day you could be broke and, and not have anything. And I think that's what, um, if seeing someone die just suddenly, just for no reason, as you put it, it, it reminds us of our own mortality. 
And we have a difficult time dealing with the whys when maybe the why isn't really all that important. And you write about that so beautifully in the book where if there's a a sudden death and you talk about your father where he was killed in a car accident and people would say, oh, it's, it's so untimely. It wasn't his time. And I, I like that, that you question that, that, well, how do we know what was his time or not? Exactly. You know, exactly. we don't know. Maybe we that don't. was the right time for That's someone to go. I, and I think you're right in that. I really think that it was his time. I, and I think that's the way we have to look at it. It was the perfect time and the perfect way, the perfect place. And as a little elderly friend of mine once told me, all is perfect. And if we can see that, if we can realize that we don't suffer. Yes. And a lot of times if we're questioning this or asking for someone to give us a reason or an explanation to make it all okay, then that just causes more suffering rather than to accept what is or or what's happened. And that there isn't some judgment or, and, and you call it the anthropomorphic God. And I, I think that's so great. Like someone judging and keeping score that there's a scale, like a Libra scale, you know, the scale of justice that hangs, okay, well, this was the right time for this to happen. And, and this wasn't fair. And you make yourself crazy thinking like that, right? You really can. You really can. Because who are we to really uh, judge, you know, what is fair, what is right, what is wrong? We, we throw a lot of uh, egoistic judgments into things. Um, and and that, that makes life more difficult to us. And if you go around always looking for the answers or, or believing that this isn't fair or that isn't fair or this person, this something happened to them, well, that wasn't fair. And yet we don't really know. Um, I've always said karma is the perfect justice. Um, I've written about that a lot in, uh, in essays and, I really, I really do believe that, that it's difficult for us as, as human beings to throw our ego into it and say, well, that's not fair or that was wrong or, you know, throwing a judgment out there when we really don't know. We really don't know. And you write about karma in the book. And I think it's a really interesting approach to talk about the concept because we always think of it as what goes around comes around and someone who does something awful is going to get paid back, you know, tenfold for what they did and that there's some kind of justice. But I like your explanation of it in the book that it's really, we get what we deserve based on the life we created on the karma in other lifetimes, right? That, that kind of carries over, but some people might bristle at that explanation because they wouldn't believe that there are other lifetimes. Right. Right. But it makes sense to me. And they do. And, and that's the reason um, in the Eastern philosophies um, and, and more and more uh, Christian people believe in, uh, are, believe in reincarnation. They're starting to believe in reincarnation. And you can't believe in karma unless you also believe in reincarnation, because sometimes life just isn't fair. Uh, why do, you know, like Harold Kushner wrote in his book many years ago, why bad things happen to good people. Nobody's ever written a book about why good things happen to bad people. So you have it. Karma is merely action. And 
it ne doesn't necessarily take place immediately. It can. Uh, if you step out in front of a bus and it hits you, that's pretty, that's pretty immediate karma. That's like instant karma, as my grandson used to say. He would go, that's instant karma, huh, Grandma? And, yep, that's instant karma. Um, and, and yet we see people that go through their whole lives and they live these terrible lives and yet they seem to be wealthy and healthy and having the life that we only wished we had. And yet, you know that through our past lives, um, there are things that we will uh, have carried over, that we will have to, at some point, pay those, those karmic debts. And it's not just, well, you did something bad, so something bad should happen to you. There's also what in Buddhism is called merit. We have merit. When we, when we perform actions, all actions, body, speech, and mind, when we perform actions that are beneficial to others, that help others, that also is karma. It creates karma. It creates merit. And we too will reap that um, when, we, when we perform those actions. Christians uh, believe in karma. Jesus said, as you sow, so shall you reap. And that's karma. And, and that's not just sowing bad things. It's, it's good things. You will reap what is beneficial when you sow beneficial seeds, but you can't sow negative, hateful seeds and expect a good life. Maybe it be a good life for a while, but I think ultimately we have to realize that karma is like gravity, whether you believe in it or not. It is happening every day in all the ways that you act and react in this material world. Right. You reap what you sow. I think those words are, are so true. And I think we can also make, make changes and life is malleable. I mean, I, I look at my favorite Christmas story, a Christmas Carol. And I always love when Scrooge wakes up after the three ghost visitation and he realizes he can change and maybe that would cause his karma moving forward to be better again in the next life around. And he spread joy and love for the rest of his days after that, after he had that experience from being such a horrible person before that. So yeah, it's such an interesting concept. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back to chat more with Claire. And I really love this book and the concepts that she brings up. I really encourage you to give it a read. The Illusion of Life and Death, Mind, Consciousness, and Eternal Being. And we'll be right back. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. Thanks for coming back after the break. I'm Diane Ray. We're just chatting here with Claire Goldsberry, the author of The Illusion of Life and Death, Mind, Consciousness, and Eternal Being. And I was reading a study from a Pew Research Center study back in 2014, a religious landscape study, and they said that 72% of Americans believe there is a heaven, 58% believe there is a hell. I think that's interesting that there's more that believe in heaven, 
less that believe in hell. But overall, most people think that something happens after death. And in Christianity, we're taught that the soul survives death. But I've read different explanations and descriptions of what exactly the soul is. So I was curious of your take on the soul. What do you think that is? Well, I was always curious about that too, growing up. That was another question that I used to ask in my my huge interest in religion and uh, and studying the Bible and my desire to be a minister. So I had to know all of this stuff, but nobody could ever explain to me what the soul was. Um, I found that answer really in, um, in Buddhism, oddly enough. Um, Buddhism is a little bit different than Hinduism in that Buddhism doesn't believe in, um, in a, a, a self, uh, a, an eternal self that goes on and on, but they do believe in mind and mind and soul, uh, to me are equivalent. When you look at the Greek word for mind, it's, it's psyche. The Greek word for soul is psyche. And so we get our word mind, um, you know, psychology, psychiatrist, uh, psychic, um, uh, you know, when you go to a psychic, have your reading done. So mind and psyche uh, are the same thing. And soul fits right in there because the Greek word uh, for soul is psyche. And so I think that that really helped explain it to me. And then people go, well, what is mind? One time, Stuart Hameroff, who was an anesthesiologist, and he was actually the founder of the uh, Center for Consciousness Studies at the University of Arizona. And he once said to uh, a group that I attended that he never attended a surgery in which he was the anesthesiologist, where they opened up someone's skull to do brain surgery and found anything that he could call mind. And so in the Eastern philosophies, mind is not a thing. Mind is in the heart chakra. Mind is the soul. It is, it is what endures. It stays with, well, it just, it doesn't stay with your body. It moves out of the body but it remains a consciousness on a level of consciousness, probably similar to the very subtle sleep consciousness. The Dalai Lama often said that, that the, the, what, death is like the very subtle level of sleep, that deep sleep that you go into right after you fall asleep. And then of course you have your, your REM sleep, which is your dream state and so forth. So I think that's, a good answer. It satisfied my quest for what is the soul. And I think it's a pretty good uh, evaluation of what, of what soul is and what mind is and how we can look at those two things as, as being one and the same, really. So you would equate soul and consciousness together. Yes. Would that be right? Yes. Yes. I think. And I think of uh, that as yeah, it makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, and then that would be, for... uh, I was going to say that would be, I, I think of it as 
the soul and the consciousness as an, an energy, something that can never be destroyed. Like Einstein would say, you can't destroy energy. It would only change or go somewhere else. And if you've ever been with anyone who's passed and, and you've witnessed this, and I've seen people that have passed and they are missing that force, that life force, that energy, that consciousness is gone and it's visible. You, you can see that it's gone and leaves just these shells that are left behind, these these husks that our, our bodies are that hold that consciousness for that period of time. And then I guess the next question would be, would be well, where does it go? Does it go to another level of consciousness? Like you're talking about the dream state. So as we die, we will wake up in another state, another place, which I guess we'll all see when that happens. And I think it's not so much. Of that a, makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I think it's not so much of a, of a place, um, a place that we go, as you mentioned earlier, uh, heaven or hell. Uh, the Eastern philosophies would look at it as samsara, which is this earthly existence, uh, this material existence versus nirvana, which is uh, some people equate it to heaven. People who uh, study Buddhism, who have been Christians, kind of relate it to heaven. Yet it's not really a place where we go, per se. It is a state of that mind. Um, and they always are very careful about what state your mind is in when you die. Uh, you should be helping the person think about, uh, you know, projecting where they're going, projecting what they see. A lot of people, you know, Brent saw uh, different things when he was just before he died. Uh, people, uh, just a different kind of a realm than what was around him uh, in, in our family room when he was dying. So I think that uh, when, you, when you think about where we go, uh, I use several examples in the book, uh, particularly one from um, Howard Storm in his book, My Descent Into Death. And he had a heart attack on the streets of London, or Paris he was in, on the streets of Paris when he was escorting a group of art students from the uh, Northern Kentucky University. And he wrote about his descent into death. And rather than seeing beautiful, wonderful things that he was you know, used to hearing people say, oh, it was light and it was music and oh, everybody loved me. And um, Howard Storm had a very different experience in that what surrounded him were demons uh, approaching him and clawing at him. And, and he, he became very afraid until he realized that those demons were of his own ego. They were of his own making because he'd always been very materialistic. He was unhappy because he never became a great artist. It was always his goal. And he all he was doing, all he was doing was teaching university students art. And I think we can see there that perhaps through Mr. Storm's uh, near-death experience that uh, we really can create, we are creating right now in this life what we can expect 
when that next level of consciousness, as you, as you kind of put it, uh, when we enter that next level of consciousness and are mind only, when we are mind, and we can't imagine that being mind only, but that's, that's a good way to describe it. When we enter that mind only state of nirvana. That's so interesting. The ex the example that you shared, I've read about those where they're called uh, distressing near-death experiences, like a DNDE, where those people are not really experiencing the beautiful light, the tunnel and the angels and all of that. And I, I liked when I was reading about Brent's experience and the the people he were he was talking to i guess there was communication that was happening while he had kind of one foot in one side and one foot in the other side and uh a friend of mine that was uh or i guess he's still a hay house author that i worked with during my hay house days david kessler he wrote this great book called visions trips and crowded crowded rooms and it was accounts from hospice workers and doctors of people's near death or death experiences as they were transitioning, some people saw rooms full of people kind of telling them, come on, let's go, or welcoming them. <laughs> they saw their parents, relatives, right. people that were over there. Other people felt that they were going on a trip. They're like, hey, I'm leaving and you can't come with me. <laughs> I'm going somewhere else. <laughs> right. And those experiences were very similar between people. And I, I thought that I always found that so comforting that even if you may be alone at that actual moment, that you're really not alone, that people are helping you over to the whatever's next. I, I find that that's usually true. I've, I've found that in, in uh, people that I've known that I have visited elderly people that uh, were, were not on the brink of death, but were heading that direction. Uh, one lady I knew, she kept telling me about all of these people that would come and see her at night. Every night, she had all these visitors in her room and she said, I don't know who they are. Well, some of them I know who they are, but I really don't know who they are. Um, and, and she would just, she was so amazed that so many people came to her room at night to visit her. So, and then she died uh, several days later, but it was, uh, I think it is interesting that while we do die alone, we're not really alone. There are people that, that help us across um, because I think maybe it can be a disconcerting thing to know that you're going to lose your, your body, this thing you've been attached to for however many years. And uh, I do think we get that help. I think the universe um, is always out there to help us, whether you call it God or the universe or the divine, all that is or whatever. I don't think we're ever really alone at all. I agree. I, I feel that way too. And that gives me comfort that at least at that point, someone will help me over that, that hump, you know, then hopefully it'll be smooth sailing after that. So I wanted to talk a little bit, <laughs> hopefully, I wanted to talk a little bit too about some of, of Brent's experience and, and, the search for immortality that some people go through where they're clinging on to things so desperately. We talked a little bit about that earlier, but in Brent's case, like he chose to handle his cancer diagnosis very matter of factly. He decided he didn't want to do chemo and whatever time he had left, that was what it's going to be. And it seems like people feel that death is a failure 
in a lot of ways, especially in the medical profession. Like I've, I've failed if this person died on my watch. Right. And Brent handled it very differently. I thought that was really brave of him, but I think there needs to be a shift overall rather than prolonging someone's life to making it a better death. Right. And I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of talk around this right now. Uh, I know Dr. Hasselhorst, who I mentioned in my book with his uh, universal directives, there, there needs to be something done to help people um, rather than just help them, try to help them a lot, stay alive for longer. Um, a lot of people don't want that kind of help. Um, Dr. Hasselhorst explained that a lot of people would say, you know, to, please leave me alone. Don't, don't do anything more to me. You know, we want to do this test, that test. We want to see if there's one more drug we can give you or one more surgery. And, and I think people are starting to recognize themselves that don't worry about this doc. You know, I've got this, I'm, I'm headed out. And I do think people know when they're, um, when they're getting ready to leave. I know my mother did. She kept telling my brother, I feel really funny. She says, I feel funny. And he would go, well, what's wrong with you? She says, I don't know. I just feel funny. And a day later, she died. So I think people know, and I don't think it's always in the best interest of the, of the dying person to, to have this kind of attention um, of being kept alive at all costs. And the costs are getting enormous to keep people alive. So I think we, we need to learn to live better and to die better. And if we know how to die better, perhaps we'll know how to live better and it will, it will be less stress. It'll be less suffering overall, suffering in life or suffering uh, when we're, when we're dying. Exactly. And that's what your book shares and explains to people that you can have a, a good death. It's not a failure and I remember reading a story about Charles Schultz, the cartoonist, and yeah. it was in the paper before he was going to die. And people were supposed to pray for him to keep him alive after he had been fighting cancer. And rather than celebrate his life, it it was, let's make sure he stays alive. I mean, I just think that things can be reframed rather than the death be a failure or something that you wouldn't celebrate. Like, look at everything he left us. I, I just thought, I thought that was interesting. The difference. That is interesting. You do hear a lot of people will say, Oh, my, you know, my father or my mother or my someone is dying, you know, pray for them, you know, that they'll get well. Um, I know after Brent died one time, my, my good friend who I uh, met at a, at a new thought tradition um, church, that uh, she had got, you know, said, you need to go there. And so I, I went and, and really found it interesting. And I used to tell Diane, I used to say, you know, I said, Brent got the ultimate healing. And she and I decided that death is the ultimate healing. And if you think of it as that, um, and not as a failure, or, you know, a disappointment that Oh, we prayed for this person, but they died anyway. What happened? How, you know, how could this have happened? Um, and you think of it as perhaps it is the ultimate healing 
Um, they're free from the suffering that the physical body causes. And I really think that we just need a different way of looking at it and perhaps praying for that person's highest and best good, whatever that is, because we don't know their karma. We don't know what their highest and best good is. So I think it's important that we not think of death as a failure or a, a, a horrible event, but that this was that person's highest and best good. This was the life they were called to live and the death that they uh, were called to have at the right time. Yes, absolutely. I just think we need to to shift that thinking. I remember when my father passed away and, and he had struggled with Alzheimer's and I wanted him to be out of suffering. So in that case, I was kind of, pr I was praying for, can you just please re release him from this? You know, let him, let him go instead of having to just drag on that, that whole process, but it, it's painful. And we didn't, you know, like we, it we is. talked about in the beginning, we don't, we attach, you know, we don't like to, to think about, about letting go when that's, right. that's going to happen. And, and one of the things that you mentioned in the book as well is talking about meditation and how that can move us into a space where we can better understand the dying process. And I thought that was interesting. How do you work with that, with meditation? Well, uh, there was a special meditation that we used to do when I was um, at the, uh, when I was taking classes at the local Buddhist center. And it was called Meditation on Our Own Death. And it was really to help us all to uh, prepare for our own death. And it basically consisted of uh, taking a, a look at our physical body and what it is, how it is impermanent, how that every cell of our body dies. We visualize all of our cells dying and regenerating over our lifetime, knowing that the body we are in now is not the body that we had when we, the day we were born. Um, we have, our cells have exchanged, old cells die, new cells come. Um, and, and look at it that everything about our body is impermanent and then visualize that body ultimately uh, just going away and our and our soul, our mind in the heart chakra rising up and leaving through the crown of our head, through our crown chakra and not even needing the body anymore to um, to go on, that we do go on. And, and I think that's really helpful. Some people found it very, I guess, gruesome uh, or, you know, they, they didn't really like the meditation on our own death. I actually found it really comforting, actually, because, uh, you know, as I've said before, uh, you know, and as Buddhists always say, death is certain. The time of our death is uncertain. Always be prepared. So I think that's important. Right. And do you use meditation daily just to kind of help you sort through things? Like, do you have a practice that you like to use yourself? Well, I, I've always had a practice of contemplation. Um, I guess I'm a poor meditator. I'm a great contemplator, I guess, because I've always been a great daydreamer <laughs> ever since I was a little kid. I was just always, you know, out there somewhere thinking of something. 
but I do, I, I read, um, I read and study every morning. I contemplate what I read. I write in a journal. Uh, obviously I, I'm always writing. It's my, that's my, my habit, my obsession in my profession. So, and, and I think that does help. Um, and, and to do some meditation and just kind of quiet the mind and allow the thoughts to kind of go away like a cloud that kind of helps you kind of helps me prepare for the day actually gives a lot of oftentimes i get good ideas for my next essays uh things like that and and i think it's good to have a practice and i think that's one thing that buddhism has given me uh is is this idea that you need a practice uh and whatever your your needs are is is to help have a practice that helps you meet those, whether it's prayer, um, you know, reading a, a chapter in a, a book every day, uh, you know, a spiritual book, a religious book. I think it's helpful to have that practice. Very helpful. I'm not a great meditator either. <laughs> like you described, sometimes I have a hard time not attaching to my thoughts or I'll be sitting there trying to meditate and then I'll think, oh, tuna sandwich. Or, or something. <laughs> What's for lunch? You know, something like that. So I really enjoy uh, walking meditations. I think that's really helpful. Like the park I described at the beginning of the show, I always like to go to this particular park and I'll, I'll walk around there and then walk around the neighborhood and try to be in silence. That's really helpful. It was funny when I first started trying to meditate, I thought I had to have the right music and the perfect situation and sit in the right way. And it really works the best for me just to be quiet. And I think walking is a, a great way to do that. If you're not good at sitting, you might want to try that. Yes. Walking is, is, is a good idea. Thich Nhat Hanh developed a walking meditation that he used to do with, with his students at, at Plum Village. Um, he would, uh, he would uh, do walking meditation. And I know one of the, the, the times that I do remember my what I call my sort of enlightenment experience, and I was walking my my Doberman just you know on the sidewalk down the, the city street in the neighborhood, and thinking what a gorgeous April evening it was, and uh, it's, the sky was so blue and the trees looked so green, and the next thing I knew, everything was just this clear white light in my mind. There was no sound. There was nothing. And I felt this tingling in my crown chakra, this just very, very active tingling in my crown chakra. And it was like, I don't know where I was. I was obviously nowhere, really. When I came back out of that, my dog was sitting there looking up at me like, what's going on? And it was just an amazing experience. And so you don't really have to be on the cushion. Um, as one gal said one time, she said, well, I know what I need to do to be enlightened. I'm just, I need more time on the cushion. And I said, no, you just need to be aware wherever you are. You know, That's so true. Just be aware. It's been so wonderful to talk with you about all of these topics. And I think your book is so valuable, The Illusion of Life and Death by Claire Goldsberry. And what do you think is the future as far as you think things are going to get better? People will start 
talking a little bit more. I mean, there's things out there called death cafes where people actually gather together and talk about death and eat cake. And, you know, <laughs> I guess that, <laughs> I guess that's fun. And legislation is passing in some states that are allowing terminally ill people to have assisted dying. Do you think right. we're moving in the right direction? Things are getting better? I think we are. I know when I was uh, trying to think of a title for the book, there are, you can't even believe how many books on death and dying there are out there now. And I think people are becoming aware and I think it will get better. And I think the, the one thing that, that I like to leave with people is one thing that Brent said just before he died. And that was dying is so easy. It's just so easy. I thought it would be harder than this, but it's not. It's so easy. And I think that's good to remember. That is. That's comforting. That's a great way to wrap up. And I want to send people to your website if they'd like to find out more about you and have any questions. And the best place to go is clairegoldsberry.com. That's correct. Uh -huh. All one word, Claire Goldsberry. And Claire's a little different. It's C-L-A-R-E and then Goldsberry, B-E-R-R-Y. So I just want to get people the right place to go. <laughs> right. To the, yes. right place. The, the big mistake people make is putting an I in Claire. You don't want to do that. <laughs> yes. Well, I hope people check this out. It's such a great book. Not morbid at all. I found it very enlightening and, and inspiring and a really great read, The Illusion of Life and Death, Mind, Consciousness, and Eternal Being. And thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Diane. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.